When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 51. The Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the premier rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. Find out more about the Pine Ridge experience at pineridgegrousecamp.com and by Dogtra Callers. If you're in the market for a new tracking and training collar i suggest you check out the 2700 t and b from dogtra this is a fully capable training e-collar with nick and constant stimulation as well as a high performance pager aka vibration you've also got the tracking beeper with three different modes for all of your hunting needs find out more about the dogtra 2700 t and b at dogtra.com and by Gordy and Sons Outfitters. That's right, Gordy and Sons Outfitters, the finest store for hunting and fishing clothing, sporting art, fine jewelry, and travel gear. At Gordy and Sons Outfitters, they have what you need to get you to where you are going. And finally, by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food for sporting and hunting dogs. Premium performance dog food from Yukonuba is made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance for your bird dog. 
Find out more about Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food at yukonuba.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is William McKinney. William shared one of our podcast posts on Facebook. Thanks for sharing, William. We'll be in touch, and we'll get you a Project Upland t-shirt real soon. Anybody out there listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by doing any one of these things. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post or send us some feedback, including guest suggestions. Love to hear from my listeners. You can send me an email anytime at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, before we jump into today's episode, just a quick heads up that I officially found out yesterday, Project Upland, including myself and a few other trusted and well-known representatives of the brand, will be at Pheasant Fest in Schaumburg, Illinois. Super pumped about it. I'm going to be in Chicago for Pheasant Fest coming up in February. I've been to Pheasant Fest once before. I had an absolute blast. It's a phenomenal event. If you are anywhere near or in that area, you got to go and you got to stop by the Project Upland booth. We'll be there. I hope you will too. We'll give you some more information on booth numbers and where we'll be and all that good stuff. But stay tuned for more. Project Upland will be at Pheasant Fest. All right, this is a fun one today and an important one. If you love the American Woodcock, you will appreciate today's episode with Dr. Eric Blumberg. He's a researcher and professor out of the University of Maine. He, along with some of his colleagues and students, are doing a very important project researching the eastern seaboard woodcock migration. We talk all about it today, including a bunch about Eric's background as he grew up a Midwest rough grouse and woodcock hunter. He spent some time out west during the course of his studies and education, eventually wound up out in the northeast in Maine. We talk a little bit of bird hunting, and we talk a lot about woodcock migration research. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into today's show, and welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Eric Blumberg. All right, Eric, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you today? Doing, doing real well. Thanks for having me. We are happy to have you on the podcast. I'm excited about this conversation. Looking forward to chatting with you about various things. Most importantly, research and podcasting 101. Make sure you do your due diligence on your guest and answer these questions beforehand. But I'm going to do a little on-air program planning. Uh, I was going to refer to you as Dr. Eric Blumberg. Would that be correct? Are you a PhD? It, it it would be correct. You don't have to call me doctor. Okay. Um, Eric, Eric is just fine, but no, that's correct. Yeah, I, I received my PhD in 2012 from the University of Nevada. Awesome. All right. Well, good to have that squared away. Congratulations on that. And that is a little background for the listeners. So with that, I think that's a good place to sort of jump in and, and maybe I had pre-planned that segue. I'm not sure, but why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from originally, which we'll get into, kind of where you're at now and what you do, and then we'll that will lend itself to our, our conversation today. Sure. So I'm uh, originally from Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and uh, grew up there, attended the University of Wisconsin in Stevens Point, um, sort of did a, a 
back and forth across the country getting various graduate degrees and professional positions and then ultimately landed here in central Maine. And I live in Old Town, Maine, um, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Conservation Biology um, here at the University of Maine, which is where I'm speaking to you from tonight. And so that's one of the, basically your current position is really why we wanted to have you on the show today, but there are some things in your background and uh, some some common storylines that I wanted to cover first. So knowing that you your work today, let's rewind a little bit and talk about the beginnings, specifically how you got into upland hunting and how it all kind of started, you know, that ultimately led you to a career in fisheries and wildlife. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's hard for me to think about telling the story of how I got into upland birds and upland hunting because they've always just sort of been there, if that makes sense. Uh, So my, my father is a is an upland bird hunter and i grew up following him and his bird dogs really from the time i was old enough to walk Um, and at the same time he also has a background in natural resources and and wildlife and um has has banded american woodcock as 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 an amateur bander again my entire life so i was i was actually helping him with woodcock banding, I think, as early as two or three years old. Um, so, so that was really the, the starting point. Um, and then, of course, you know, grew up to, to, become, a, to become a hunter and, and be interested in upland bird hunting um, and wildlife in general as a result of that. And so when I, when I got into my undergraduate studies in Wisconsin and became a wildlife major, um, I was sort of naturally drawn to upland game birds professionally. And I actually made a, a fairly conscious decision at an early age, well, at, a, at an early stage in my career that I, I wanted to focus on upland birds professionally. And that led me into the, the, the route I took as a graduate student um, and, and got me where I am today here. Um, I like to say it's relevant, I think, that I've never really approached working with upland birds because I want to be a better bird hunter. They've always interested me more from a biological perspective, even though I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm not a terribly good hunter, so that, that hasn't really benefited me all that much. <laughs> but um, I, I'm sure I, I take things away from the research that I do that carry into the field, but it's really more of a better understanding the birds and and the habitat and their biology that I'm mostly interested in. Yeah, it's certainly a unique position that you find yourself in, you know, with your background and obviously much of that sort of played into where you are today, but now you're, you're kind of on both sides of the spectrum. Now, I think a lot of people that are very passionate upland bird hunters certainly go some length, some distance in towards trying to understand the species and, and the birds that we chase, but certainly not on the most likely not on the level that, that you are on. Now you are kind of one of the people that I started referring to them as the lucky ones because of what you love and what you like to do. You had a, you had a pretty easy access point, you know, given your dad. And I guess I'll, I'll say for the listeners, 
you know, Eric's dad is, uh, he's an author. He's, uh, he's a passionate upland bird hunter. He's someone that will probably be on the podcast very soon. So you'll learn, uh, you'll learn a lot more about him on an upcoming episode, but you know, he, he gave you that easy entry or at least opportunity to start, you know, getting associated with game birds and upland hunting and all of that stuff. And, and certainly it kind of led into, what you do today was there a certain point i mean you kind of touched on a little bit but was there a point that you know because with that background and that experience you weren't necessarily guaranteed to wind up an upland hunter or doing what you do today was there a point where you kind of said this is what i love this is what i want to do do you remember that specifically i think so i mean if we're talking about you know do i want to be a, a biologist studying upland game birds specifically you know there definitely was that point and I can point to that and I'd be honest or I'd be I'd be lying if I didn't say that part of it was born out of necessity and practicality too because I was getting towards the end of my bachelor's degree which was a general wildlife ecology and management degree and and thinking about getting into grad school um and in our profession that's the point at which you you by necessity specialize and you you know what are the the species I'm going to work with, what are the kinds of questions I'm going to ask, what the research I'm going to do, that sort of thing. And I had done a variety of work as an undergraduate, but I had been working on a a project in Wisconsin on American woodcock, a a radio telemetry um, habitat use and survival study. And, you know, I said to myself, I mean, for one thing, you know, I, I like to hunt upland birds and I'm interested in them that way. Um, but then when I also looked at, you know, my peers, you know, there there were people who were really interested in ducks and waterfowl, and there were the, the students that were really into big game or into, you know, non-game species like songbirds or reptiles and amphibians, whatnot. I didn't know a lot of people who were, you know, very focused on upland game birds. And I had experience working with them. I was interested in them. And, and so I kind of did make a conscious decision to specialize there, and then I just, you know, sort of followed it until today. And, and since then, you know, I, I I know a lot of folks around the country who are also upland bird specialists. Um, many of them, coincidentally, are very passionate upland bird hunters and bird dog owners. Those two things do tend to go hand in hand. Um, but uh, no, I, I would say that that's that's definitely the point. I think I think being exposed to to hunting and, and birds and bird dogs my entire life took me into the wildlife profession. And then I made some different decisions to specialize from there. So eventually we will transition into kind of the work that you do today and we'll sort of segue out of this sort of path that you took. But before we leave it, I'd like to at least sort of get your opinion and in hopes that maybe there's somebody out there listening that they're not quite as far along in life as maybe yourself or myself and maybe they have aspirations of becoming a upland bird biologist or somebody sort of that is in your field is there you know is there a clear path or do you have advice for that person on some things that they could consider or maybe look into you know if they're a little bit maybe they're not in school yet or they're getting close to that point yeah our profession is definitely one where getting a college degree is is the first step. Um, and so if a person is to the point where they think, you know, yeah, that's, that's the direction I think I want to go, you know, 
and, and assuming we're talking somebody that is either just starting college or is a high school student or and starting to think about these things, um, you know, looking into whether the universities that you're considering have programs in wildlife ecology or environmental science, something along those lines is a good first step. And then, and then, you know, if you're on the fence, contacting those departments and talking to them and learning a bit more about what they offer and, and, you know, what their curriculum is and, and that, that sort of a thing. And then, you know, if, if you've gotten to that point and made that decision, you know, I want to become, I want to make this my career and you're interested in game birds specifically um, definitely seeking out opportunities to uh, either volunteer on or get summer employment working on projects that involve upland birds so you can get that firsthand field experience. Um, that, that's definitely critical. And some of, that, some of those things you can start, um, you know, even before you enter college if opportunities are available to you locally. So, uh, you know, sending an email or giving a call to your state upland game bird biologist or a biologist with a nonprofit organization like the Rough Grouse Society or Pheasants Forever or the National Wild Turkey Federation and asking for opportunities to get involved with projects they may have going on um, if they're looking for volunteers uh, would be would be a great option too. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, good advice and thought I would at least take advantage of having you on the podcast just in case there are people out there listening because selfishly, I don't think we can have enough upland bird biologists. I think you guys do <laughs> awesome work and I'd love to see more people out there like you. So thanks for that. Appreciate it. Now rewinding back a little bit to sort of the early days, more on the upland hunting side of things. Now your dad, he recently wrote a book. I'm going to blank on the name. It was Wisconsin Bird Hunting Tales. Was that the t- title of it? Yep, that's right. He's actually got two books, that being one, and then his, his earlier book is titled Up the Creek, which Up is a compilation of essays that he's written. So the, the second one focused more directly on upland bird hunting, as the title suggests, but the first one, it, it definitely features prominently throughout the book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, he's a great storyteller. And like I said, we'll, we're going to get him on the podcast and we'll hear, uh, I talked to him last week and he told me some stories and he sent a, he emailed me a couple more that I got to read up on. So the listeners will, they'll get the treat of, of hearing some more stories from your dad, but he writes about, you know, he writes about grouse and woodcock hunting. He writes about pheasant hunting. I think there was maybe some quail hunting mixed in there, but what are your early memories, experiences, you know, you're at Stevens Point, Wisconsin. That's pretty close to you know right in grouse country was it a lot of rough grouse and woodcock hunting for you when you were younger yeah that was that was the bulk of it for sure and that was dad's real passion um we would do um an annual trip to the dakotas most years to chase pheasants and and we live at a at a point in central wisconsin where we are kind of at the the northern edge of where we have a you know some pheasant population, so there was yeah. some local local pheasant hunting to be had, but no, primarily it was rough grouse and woodcock. Right, and so that certainly again lends itself to the work that you do today. What is it? Can you can you put into words what your what you love about grouse and woodcock hunting? Um, as you know, it's it's a it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, I, I find myself enjoying, and I've, I've been lucky in following my career as I have to have, to have been able to bird hunt 
you know, across the U.S. As I mentioned earlier, I, I did my doctoral work in Nevada yeah. um, and spent a lot of time hunting western birds. And I think across the board, whether it rough grouse and woodcock in the east or chuckers and blue grouse in the west, like the places they are um, and being out in those places and in those environments are definitely probably what keep bringing me back more than anything. Um, and, and then also just being generally pretty fascinated with the birds themselves. Um, I'm, I'm lucky in that I get to, on a regular basis, you know, actually handle and, and interact with these birds alive. But you do also get, you know, that opportunity to, you know, sort of marvel at, at, at a bird in the hand um, through hunting as well. And so that's definitely a, a major driver for me. Definitely a common theme amongst people that I kind of ask similar questions to the the places that upland birds live. And I think that's probably not surprising, but most of us have that sense of adventure and exploration in us. And that is definitely a, a common theme that I think a lot of people can relate to. So that's cool. And it's awesome that you've got some experiences out West, you know, and hunting some different birds. You can really compare and contrast. I feel like that puts a lot of things into perspective after i did my first prairie trip this year it was something unlike anything i'd done before and it definitely kind of adds a lot of perspective to various upland hunting pursuits if i can if i can step back just a second and put an addendum to my you know my my advice to to yeah. fledgling biologists uh go out west as part of you know your whole career development um, whether it's for a seasonal job or something like that um, you know, it, particularly if you live in the East and if you've, you've spent most of your life in the Eastern forests, I think broadening your perspective in that way is really important. So what specifically about the West do you think sort of plays into that? It's, it's the, it's the, the vast landscape cool. and the openness by far. And, and I, I got, I got the, my first taste of this on those trips to North and South Dakota yep. and seeing the prairies for the first time. Um, you know, when I was in, when I was in junior high and high school, um, and then, you know, the, the Rocky mountains and the, the intermountain West and the great basin and all, all of those areas that I got to see, you know, as a young adult. Um, but it's, it's the, the vastness of the landscape and, and the, the dramatic landscapes, um, for sure. Awesome. All right, let's uh, let's fast forward to today. Well, more recently, 2018 hunting season. Are you stuck doing research and all kinds of work things? I mean, do you get to hunt much anymore? I, I get to hunt a fair bit. I'm lucky here in in central Maine. We have a, a large volume of grouse and woodcock habitat. Um, I can do most of my bird hunting if I choose to um, within a 30 minute drive of my house. So, Excellent. so getting, getting out regularly is not a problem. Um, my hunting season in 2018 was complicated slightly by, I have a, a toddler at home keeping me busy. All right. Um, and my, my job is, is both research and teaching, college teaching and, and the fall. And I need to figure out a way to, to fix this. The fall tends to be my busy teaching schedule. So, <laughs> 
between those two things, I, I, I wouldn't lie to you and say it was the most hunting I've ever done, um, but I, I got out quite a bit and certainly enough to, to keep me happy. Well, that's good to hear, and it's good to hear that you are well-positioned geographically in the sense that you can take advantage of some half days and some shorter periods, and you can get out and do it. I think that is very helpful uh, for somebody that wants to live a normal life and, and raise kids, and you're going to be busy, but in, in order to take advantage of those those short opportunities, that's good. This would be kind of interesting, I think, because we have, we've certainly talked at length about grouse hunting in the Great Lakes region on this podcast, and we have a good listener base here, but I am not so familiar with grouse and woodcock hunting in Maine, and I know that is a, it's definitely a go-to location for a lot of people, so I think it would be unique to have your perspective as somebody that's hunted a fair bit in back here in Wisconsin, and now you've hunted out there, compare and contrast the two locations i mean what are the similarities what are the differences yeah you you could blindfold a person and drop them in both places and at first glance probably have a tough time telling the difference interesting um but when you you know there are some fine details that you would notice um we don't have a huge aspen base here in Maine. Um, both species of aspen are present, but we don't tend to see the big contiguous aspen stands that you get in the upper Midwest. Um, we also tend to have, and this is all in general, generally speaking, sure. um, we tend to have a lot more conifers in, in our grouse cover here. So we have a lot of spruce and fir and hemlock and pine. Um, more so I think than at least the, the cover I was used to hunting in Wisconsin. Um, so those are two big differences. We also have as a major component of our hardwood forest here, American beech, which uh, is not a species that was present in Wisconsin. Um, so I, I wasn't used to that. And it, it can factor in quite a bit last, uh, not this past season, but 2017, was a a big year for beech nut mast, and it definitely changed where you were likely to find birds, especially in October. Um, so there's there's that as a component to um, kind of zooming out a little bit more. Like where I live in in central Maine, we are at the southern edge of what turns into you know massive tracts of commercial forest okay. land in northern Maine. And so it's almost all, and I think with a few exceptions, all of the covers I hunt are on are on private land um, that's generally not posted for for trespassing. And so it's publicly accessible in Maine based on our land access laws. And and a big chunk of it is property that's owned and managed um, by a variety of different landowners, but for producing forest products. The, the contrast to that in the upper Midwest is we certainly have some of that private commercial forest that, that is open to public access, but there's a much bigger role for um, state, county, and national forest land in the Midwest. So that's, that's another big difference. And, and we do have, we have some of that here in Maine. We, have, we don't have much national forest, but we do have state wildlife areas. We have um, state-owned forest land and, and a variety of other smaller, you know, more public land sources. But definitely the, the 
you know, the major um, amount of grouse and woodcock cover in the state is on private forests. Got it. Interesting. So one thing that where my sort of perception was wrong is that I, you said that both species of aspen out there are present, but I kind of assumed there was a ton of aspen and that's kind of what a lot of the commercial logging and forestry was. So it sounds like that's maybe not the case. No, it tends to be more, it tends to be more softwood driven here. Um, you know, the, the spruce, the fir, um, pine, I mean, they, they certainly are cutting hardwood, but our forests tend to not come back in aspen dominated stands, even, even after, even after a clear cut. So we tend to see a lot more birch, a lot more other hardwoods like maple, cherry, um, and, 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 you know, again, there is aspen mixed in too. Sure. So it's, it's definitely, and I, and I don't, I, I am sitting here in a building, um, at the University of Maine that's half full of foresters and people that understand the forest products industry much better than I do. <laughs> um, and, and so I won't, I won't dig into the, the fine details of the differences in, in, you know, the, the forest economy of Maine versus Wisconsin, but, um, it, there, there definitely is a difference in, in how the forests are managed for forest products between the two places. Right. Right. So this would be kind of interesting getting down to the kind of that micro level. Let's say you've got an afternoon to go hunting. It's late October or it's peak season. Leaves are 80% down. What kind of cover are you going to go find in Wisconsin? And then what kind of cover are you going to go find in Maine? I didn't realize this was going to be a quiz. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, in Wisconsin, um, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a trick question to answer. Um, if you said it's an afternoon and I only have an afternoon and I'm in Wisconsin, um, and I'm presumably at, you know, my parents' house sure. in central Wisconsin, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a, it, it might actually look a, a bit more like something here in Maine because where we live, we are at a bit of a, we're kind of at the southern edge of where you get into the, the North Woods. And so we do have, you know, we have a fairly large state wildlife area near us that has big chunks that are managed for Aspen. Um, and so certainly the ability to go and dive into a, you know, 100 acre Aspen stand is there. Yep. Um, or I could go down the road and knock on the neighbor's door and get permission to hunt, you know, their creek bottom that I know because I've been hunting it my whole life has, you know, has grouse and woodcock. So, so in that sense, I could kind of do something very similar to what I might do here in Maine. Sure. Um, but here, here in Maine, it would be, I, I tend to focus a bit more on, you know, I still focus on local areas that are primarily commercial forests. I tend to look for, I I really like getting into places where the logging roads are gated so that I can, you know, get behind the gate and put some boot leather down and um, get away from the road. And that's usually my preference. Got it. Now I'm making an assumption here, but I don't know this for a fact. Do you have dogs of your own these days? I do. I have, I have, uh, uh, one bird dog presently, which is a, a German short hair, which comes from the line of German short hairs that my my dad has been breeding for my entire life, and uh, he's he's twelve, no, oh, okay, eleven, eleven. So he's he's getting up there. Yeah. Um, and it'll probably be time for for a replacement here soon. Um, but uh, but yeah, I do. So I have a, a male German short hair named Sue. Well, the good thing 
about when you do need a new dog, you know who to call. It's true. <laughs> All right, man. Well, that's awesome. I wanted to get a little bit of a little bit of background and and some story on kind of your you know your upbringing and how you got into upland hunting and how you found yourself today. But ultimately, we wanted to have you on to talk about the Eastern Woodcock Migration Project that you're working on. So. I'm just going to stop right there and let you take it a little bit. Give us the high-level overview of your current work and sort of what uh, what we're hoping to talk to you about today. So this is a this this is a woodcock research project that is going on its second full year, and it the the, the centerpiece of the project involves using what is pretty newly developed animal tracking technology to be able to follow woodcock throughout their annual migration. Um, and, and when I say tracking technology, it's global positioning system, GPS tracking technology. So the same, um, fundamentally the same kind of technology that many of us use on our bird dogs to follow them in the field. We have equivalent tools that we can use to follow wild animals. Um, our, our project is not the first to, to ask these kinds of questions. There was a seminal study recently done um, out of the University of Arkansas um, looking at woodcock migration using satellite transmitters, and it was primarily focused in the, the central region. So they were marking birds in Texas and Louisiana on the wintering grounds and, and in the upper Great Lakes, and then using these tracking devices to actually follow the bird or through its entire migration. It's something that's been fairly limited for a bird like woodcock. Um, you know, they're a relatively small bird, and, and with all wildlife, we are limited in what sort of a tracking device we can attach to them by weight. And usually we say that we try to keep any sort of marking device less than about 4% of what the animal weighs. And so it's only been really in the last even like five years that the the devices being produced, which have, in the case of the ones we use, a, a GPS chip, really basically the same as what would be in a smartphone. And then, of course, it needs a battery, and the battery tends to be the thing that adds the most weight to the transmitter. And so the the ability to put these very small GPS transmitters on a bird the size of a woodcock is is what makes the work we're doing possible. The relevance of it is this is, you know, now for the first time we can mark a bird, say, here in Maine um, with a tracking device. And the way the the units we are using function, they have both the, the GPS chip that collects the location of the bird. And then they also have an ability to transmit that data that's collected to a global satellite network called the Argos Network that retrieves it off the bird and then via the internet sends that data to us. And, and the major advance with that type of technology is that now you don't need to either recover the bird and you know physically download the data that's been collected from it. You don't need to run around in the woods uh, with a metal antenna trying to listen for the signal of the bird, which is what we've traditionally done with radio transmitters. Um, and so it's allowing us to follow the birds, you know, really at a continental scale um, 
without being limited on how we get that information back from them, if that makes sense. So we we initiated this project. It's it's a cooperative, and we call it such. It's we're working with state biologists from across the eastern U.S., um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada, and I, I mentioned the work that had been done in the central region, and we are effectively trying to to replicate that along the eastern seaboard. And I can talk a little bit more as we get into it about the specific objectives that we have um, and and how this all came together. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great preface. And I do want to ask you some of those questions and have you add a little bit more detail, a little color around that. One of the things I was familiar, basically just my time at the Rough Grouse Society, I was familiar with sort of the central flyaway study that they did, but there are, there's some differences certainly in, in what you described in the new technology in that I don't remember exactly, but I believe that the other transmitters that they were using in the central flyway, they weren't like a 100% always on real time feedback device. They had to, they were only sending out their location, I think once every 48 hours or something. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. In a nutshell, um, there's two different technologies at play here. One of them are the the GPS technology, which is really there's this this network of satellites orbiting the planet, and your phone or your dog's collar is listening for them to pass overhead, and then based on you know a a, a triangulation from multiple satellites, it tells you where on the ground the device is. The, the other technology is what's referred to as um, a PTT transmitter, and that's this Argos network, where it's a single satellite that passes overhead. And when the tag connects with that satellite, it uses um, physics and the Doppler shift of the returning transmission to estimate where on the ground the, the transmitter is. So it's a, it's a fundamentally different process and the the latter the the Argos PTT Doppler shift tends to be a little bit less accurate than the GPS. Um, our transmitters that we're using now have both. We take advantage of the GPS tag to collect the really fine scale location data, um, and then we take advantage of that Argos network to transmit the data back to the satellite. So they actually use both. The advantage of the GPS is that it's it's much higher resolution. You know, we're getting, um, you know, five to 10 to 20 meter accuracy. Whereas there was sometimes with, with the alternative method, you know, upwards of a half a mile or a mile uncertainty in where the bird was. Um, they did in the central region project, they were able to start using the GPS tags. I think towards the end of their project is when the technology got to the point that it was small enough to put on a woodcock. And so we have the advantage in our current project of being a few years later and the the technology just keeps improving. And that's what allows us to to work with both of those two things and integrate it in a single tag. Sure. Yeah. And it's only going to keep getting better. But yeah, that's what I think makes you know, I checked out some of the maps and I'll have some links to your webpage and, and some more information for people. But right now, the accuracy and the technology that you're able to use, you're able to get really good data on where these birds are, which is, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's critically important as you follow these birds 
as they migrate down the eastern seaboard, you're able to see when they land in sort of an urban area and they're using cover that maybe we didn't even know was there, you're able to see specifically like these little pockets of cover that these birds are using as they as they make their journey south. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's it's since I get to watch the data roll in as we get it and kind of real time look at where the birds are, it's it's highly addictive and fascinating to see what they do. Um the tag the tags work in such a way that they we program them for a specific frequency of locations. Typically, we're getting a, a point on every woodcock every day. And then after every third location, it listens for the satellite to pass over and transmits the data. So it's not quite real time, but it's almost real time. Sure. Every every three days or so, we're, we're hearing from the birds. And, and, you know, they are still limited by battery size and, and life expectancy. So we're getting anywhere from three to four months to as much as six to seven months, we can put slightly larger tags on the females because they're bigger and that gets us a bigger battery and a longer lifespan. Um, but we are able to, to essentially follow a individual bird throughout at least one, if not multiple migrations from the North to the South and back again. Are you, uh, these batteries, are they, did you touch on this? Are they using solar power? The tags that we use are not using solar oh, okay. power, and that's one of the differences. Um, many of these, many of the satellite tags that are used for a variety of species are solar powered, um, and I, I don't have a good. I, I couldn't tell you why the company that produces them does not put solar on these. I mean, solar adding a solar panel adds weight to the tag, yep. and then. Also, when you're dealing with a bird like woodcock um, that, you know, live in forests and during some of the year there's a canopy, um, we're also really interested in them during this time of the year when, you know, there's less daylight in general. Um, so solar is not without its issues because the sun needs to shine for the batteries to charge for the tag to work. Um, with that said, you know, they, the, the tags that were used in the central region study primarily solar powered and they collected a lot of really great data from those tags. So that's, you know, two different, uh, approaches, I guess you would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had remembered, I remembered seeing that, that they were using solar powered, a little panel on the back and that's one way to do it. But the fact that you're getting, you know, months at a time out of a, out of a battery charge, I mean, certainly they're doing something right there because it's, it's not drawing a ton of power and you're able to to get that data back. Yeah, the the, the kind of the big breakthrough I think they made was that they they were able to insert software into the tag that predicts when the sat when the satellites are going to pass over. Got it. And that saves just a ton of battery because the tag isn't searching for that Argo satellite um, constantly. Yeah, it's the old trick where when we first started to really you know, do, at least for me, I think a lot of people started mapping with their cell phones. You realize that when you're in a no service area, your, your cell phone is searching for service and it just crushes the battery. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. So that's kind of the, that's the, that's the high level, uh, of the project. I had a, I had a thought when you were, you're explaining this and you're talking about, you know, studying the woodcock mi migration and it's sort of obvious, but I ultimately, the purpose of banding woodcock is to to gain some information about 
the migration. You hope to band a woodcock in the north or the south and then hopefully have somebody harvest it, kill it, and return it in another location. You learn something about that bird. This is sort of the 21st century uh, model of doing that and you of course get a lot of different information but it's just it's fascinating that your dad has been woodcock banding for all these years and now here you are kind of doing sort of the uh the innovative banding technique of the 21st century yeah no i, I guess i hadn't thought of it that way but you're you're right um and i think you know i mean the interesting thing to me is we i i feel like we are learning and I'm going to say something that's going to sound like I'm downplaying the importance of banding, and I'm in no way, shape, or form doing that. But I do feel like we are learning as much on a year-to-year basis with these satellite tracking methods as we learned with like a half century of of banding. Yeah. Um, so it's just the volume of information you get from each individual bird. So if you think about it in that scenario where you band a bird and it gets shot by somebody somewhere else, you get a starting point and an ending point, you know, nothing about what happened in between. Correct. And that's kind of the crux of what we feel like we're able to learn with this new project is we're able to fill in all those gaps from starting to ending point, um, which, you know, is just extremely information rich. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I've had that conversation with people, you know, with, with the GPS technology, you know, somebody could be quick to say, well, why would you even bother banding if we can do this GPS stuff? But I think as you alluded to, there there are, uh, I believe there are other intangible things with woodcock banding and the opportunity that it represents to sort of allow, you know, volunteers and other people to get involved with it. And I just think there are, there are a lot of other things going on with banding and not to mention the, you know, the actual banding and hopeful return of a band, uh, that information as well. So I think like you said, not trying to downplay that at all, but it is, it's very cool to be able to put technology to work and sort of get the, the story in between points A and B. And, and not to, not to get into too much technical detail here, but the, the direction, my goal and where I really hope to go with this project um, is to be able to get all of this really fine scale information that we can collect with these GPS tags and then integrate that with, the half century plus of banding data that we have, which is useful for things like understanding what the annual survival of woodcock is, what the harvest rates are, and meshing those two things together. That's that's very much a goal of of our project is to to bring those sort of like bring you know the old and the new together. Yeah, definitely. All right, so sort of moving on a little bit to. You've touched a little bit on the goals of your research, but you know I'm out of my league here talking about thesis and hypothesis and scientific theory and that sort of stuff. But when you started this project, was there a hypothesis? Is there something that you're trying to prove? Is there information that you thought that you knew going into it? Yeah, uh, you know, a big a big driver has to do with migration paths, migratory connectivity. Uh, and the fact that these birds, you know, are moving from Canada to Louisiana and everywhere in between and understanding how all those places are potentially connected to each other, which informs how we have to think about managing the birds. So to give you an example, um, and, and we've been throwing around, you know, central versus eastern region, 
Um, woodcock are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and state agencies as two population segments, one occurring in the central region that roughly you can think of as corresponding with the Mississippi River, and one occurring in the eastern region, which roughly speaking corresponds with the eastern seaboard and the Appalachian Mountains sort of split them down the middle. Um, and we've known for a long time from that band return data that birds mostly go from, you know, uh, Ontario and the upper Midwest down to Texas and Louisiana, and that constitutes the eastern or the central rather flyway for woodcock. And then birds tend to go from Quebec and the maritime provinces and the northeast down to, you know, the southeastern states, and and that sort of constitutes the the Atlantic or the eastern woodcock flyway. Um, but you know, we've we've known from band returns that birds that are marked in Maine sometimes get shot in Louisiana. Birds that are marked in Quebec sometimes get shot in Texas. So we knew that there was kind of that northeast to southwest potential connectivity. Um, and that was that was highly confirmed with the central region study. They marked birds in Louisiana and Texas with satellite tags and watched them fly up the Appalachians and end up in Maine and New Brunswick and, and yep. whatnot. Um, what you don't tend to see in the band return data is birds being marked in the Midwest and turning up in the Southeast. So like South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. And part of that is because there has, you know, there's traditionally been less marking of birds in the Southeast. So there's a little bit of uncertainty there. You know, do they not really go there or do we just, have we just not marked enough birds to really see it? And so that was definitely part of the motivation here is we wanted to be able to get tags out throughout the Eastern region to evaluate that migratory connectivity. Along the way, we started thinking about all of the other sort of gaps in our knowledge of woodcock migration and where we were poised to learn important things. And we all of a sudden came up with a pretty big laundry list of of goals for the project. So to, to sort of, you know, jump off there, timing of migration is hugely important. And I think bird hunters, especially those who live, you know, in more southern areas can really appreciate this. You know, if you hit a flight of woodcock, which is, you know, a migratory flight, you're going to have a really good day, right? Yep. And state wildlife agencies and the Fish and Wildlife Service appreciate this, and they know that to the extent they can set, say, the timing of hunting seasons to coincide with that wave of migration, they'll both increase hunter opportunity and then also you know, tend to target that harvest towards birds that are coming from more northern areas where they have larger population and probably can sustain a greater level of harvest than, you know, a small local population. So we, we realized pretty quickly that one of the great things these tags are going to allow us to do is is get a really detailed look at when birds are departing, when they're moving, how long are they staying and stopping at a particular location, and then also, you know, as a, as a scientist, I'm interested in what are all the environmental factors that drive that? Is it primarily due to weather? Um, you know, is it is it uh, just general seasonality? Those sorts of things. Um, 
so that's that's a major objective what we're interested in. And then a, a third one that I'll just touch on briefly is um, survival of the birds as they're migrating. This has been a big black box for woodcock because of the fact that we could mark birds in one place and use, say, like a radio transmitter where you have to, you know, again, wave the metal antenna around and get the signal of the bird to know it's there. Um, you know, we can we can do that and know if a bird dies as long as it stays here where we marked it. But as soon as it picks up and flies 100 or 200 or 400 miles, which they regularly do, we've lost that bird, and then it's like looking for a needle in the haystack. Um, and so I think if if there's a central hypothesis, if you will, that they are dying during migration while actively moving, we just didn't have the ability to pick that up, and we think we do now. And so a big part of the project is understanding how mortality of the birds during migration, which could happen because they're killed by a predator, it could happen because they fly into a building. How does that factor into and how important is it for the annual cycle of the bird and how the populations change? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting point in the question that I was rolling around in my head. Are are you making any effort to recover the transmitters to learn specific detail about maybe a, a particular bird's demise, or is that not realistic or not necessary? It's It would be great. Um, it, it turns into a practical issue related to how the tags work. We don't tend to, we actually don't tend to know when they die. A quirk of the technology is that the, the tag stops transmitting if it if it falls off the bird and lays on the ground. Okay. Um, and so what what we see is a bird moving, 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 and then disappears. Gotcha. And because we know something about how long the tag should function, and we're we're working to learn something about how well the birds retain the tags, because a tag falling off of the bird would look very similar. Um, but if we can tease those things out, we can use that information to to better understand at what point during that migration do we tend to see birds blinking off the map. That's got to be drive you a little bit crazy at times if you're if say following a bird uh, along its route and then all of a sudden it you know it's maybe a month into its journey so you know the battery's still good and all of a sudden it disappears. Yeah. You know, it was it was concerning to me at first, but then I I had to change my perspective a little bit. It's exact I've done a lot of work with mark recapture in banding banded birds, so like you go out into a site and you repeatedly catch a bird and recapture it and you're looking at that pattern of i know the bird is here this year and it was there again next year and it was there again the year after and then all of a sudden it disappears and you don't really know what happened to it and as soon as i changed my thinking a little bit with these tags realize all right this is just a mark recapture scenario i wasn't worried about it anymore. gotcha yeah all right so now you're into this research you're in the second year is that correct Yep. Okay. So you're in the second year. You had some you had some assumptions, and you you went into this, you know, trying to wanting to learn, obviously, lots about this bird and about its awesome migration. What are some things that are jumping out at you now in year two? Some kind of unique things, maybe things that you saw a particular bird do, or you know, new questions that you have now after you're starting to see some of this data. Yeah. Just to give a, a small amount of backstory. We started last year with a pilot season. We marked six birds here in Maine and watched them go south. And then this year, working with our, our project partners, you know, we've been able to work in um, 
seven different states, two Canadian provinces. You know, we put out upwards of 80 transmitters across that area this this fall. And, and I know you said you're going to link to the webpage, and I would encourage the listeners to go check out some of the information we have there for more details, uh, woodcockmigration.org, and also see who our cooperators are because they're pretty instrumental to the project. Um, but to, to get back to your question, um, the things that have surprised me the most, um, the flight distances, we have seen birds move upwards of 500 miles in a single night, which wow. indicates that they basically pick up, we think, in the evening, fly 500 miles, and then set down the next day. Um, you know, which I, I think we probably had a good inkling that that was about how far they could go. Um, and seeing it confirmed repeatedly is is pretty amazing. And, and clearly there's lots of things associated with tailwinds and things like that that allow yeah. them to do it. Um, but they do it regularly. And then some birds, you know, they, they pick up and do like 40 or 80 or 100 miles. So there's variation. But what also surprised me, you know, one of the things we're really interested in is what, what we term stopover, which is that sort of like short duration I just made a big migration. I've landed somewhere. I need to eat a bunch of worms and refuel and, you know, build back some of those fat reserves that I just burned so I can keep going. Um, watching certain birds do a 400-mile flight, stop for a single day, and then pick up and do another 400-mile flight the next day. You know, and, and we've seen birds go from Maine to North Carolina in six days. And this year we saw a repeat performance, a bird from the Adirondacks in New York, I believe only took four days to get to coastal North Carolina. So some of them are capable of very rapidly migrating from their breeding area to a wintering area. And then there are some which will take weeks, if not months, to do roughly the same distance. So there's a ton of variation among individuals um, that I, I'm really excited to learn more about. Um, and, and I think just generally speaking, some really kind of astonishing things that, that the birds can do. That is pretty amazing. Think about a bird, you know, that small, you know, many of us that are listening have probably hunted them thinking about them doing 500 miles, even with a tailwind. That's, that's one hell of a flight now. All right. I'm going to try something here, a little myth busting, and maybe, maybe I have it all wrong, but I want to ask you and see if you have any comment. Now you've probably heard this, maybe not, but it's something I hear all the time. You know, as upland hunters, we talk about the woodcock migrating and certainly when it gets to be October, everybody's sort of watching the wind and watching the weather and wondering when the, when the woodcock are going to start to fly. And I feel like I always hear somebody say, Oh, you know, if you're out, you're out hunting a bird and you flush him and he, and he barely gets up off the ground and only flushes 20 yards, that's a migrator, you know, cause he's tired. Well, I've always thought that was kind of BS in the sense that a bird that can, you know, here now it's proven can fly 500 miles one day, rest for a day, and then fi fly another 500 the next day. I don't just don't think that he's tired, but I wonder if you have any comments on that. Hmm. I don't think I'm going to be able to bust your myth for you today. <laughs> um, only because, like I like I said earlier, it, they're highly variable, right? And you know, some of them are just astonishing with how quickly they can recover and keep going. And then we have some that sit in the same place, you know, fly 200 miles and sit in the same place for, um, you know, weeks and before they keep going. 
So I don't know. I mean, I've certainly observed the same thing and heard the same speculation. Um, And I would say it, you know, there, there could be some truth to that, to be perfectly honest with you, not to, not to go against your, your gut feeling. Absolutely. Um, Bring it on. And it, and it all, it all depends on, you know, what sort of condition a bird was in before it made the flight, um, how far it went and, you know, what sort of resources it has to recover, um, locally. So I think you also just tend to see some birds behave differently than others, um, for reasons not related to what sort of condition they're in. So you might have some, you know, bold birds that always fly long distances and some that tend to just get up and set down again regularly. Um, so how's that for a wishy-washy? No, that's, that's great. That's great, honestly. And I, and I think, you know, I say that, you know, I say it's BS. That's what I thought. But really, I think the takeaway for me is your comments about the variability and the individuality of each bird. Because I think that's, you know, that sort of speaks to the woodcock that I know. Because I think that's kind of what sort of why many of us have an affinity for the bird is because they are so, they just, they're so unique and they can be quirky. And, you know, some of them, some of them will will fly goofy and low and through the trees and, and others will rise straight up. And I, and I do believe there is some consistencies there between males and females, but I think the, the variability kind of lends itself to that point because yeah, it is, it is interesting and you do see quite a bit of unique behavior from Woodcock. I will say, and, and I just thought to myself, one of the things I, I want to make sure I do is acknowledge um, we have a, there's a PhD student here at the university of Maine, Alex fish, who's working on the project. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's doing his dissertation research. And one of the central things that he's interested in is can we explain variation among individual woodcock during migration, whether it's by, you know, characteristics like age and sex, or there might just be certain individuals do things differently. Um, and that's part of what he's working to tease out. He's, he's also, I should, you know, for full disclosure, when I talk about like how quote unquote, we marked, you know, 80 woodcock this fall, that, that was largely him and our, our collaborators. Like he's, he's done a tremendous amount of work to make the project happen. Yep. Excellent. And I'll, uh, if you want, I can add, you know, certain people's contact information that stuff's available on the website too i would imagine so we'll certainly put the link to the website but we can it is yeah we have a we have a page that documents all of our partners um including their agencies and contact information so if if you go there and and you see that you know your state is active um it'll it'll have a link to the to the upland biologists who are working with in the state um and it's certainly important to acknowledge that this is a this is very much a group effort yeah all right, so we're going to finish up here pretty quick, and, but I do have, I want to ask one question. You talked about a little bit in that uh, you talked about the timing of migration topic, and I alluded it to it in my last question about how when it is October, you know, everybody's wondering when the woodcock are going to fly, and there's all kinds of old speculative, you know, methods that people talk about with the moon and the wind and that sort of thing. Knowing that you are right in the midst of this research project and you may not have, you know, firm conclusions about anything, have you have you gained any insight or picked up anything? Did you see anything last fall or anything to kind of that you can sort of grasp onto in regarding that timing of migration or, or are you still very much in that data collection mode? 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about two things, one, one related to this project. Um, and the, the really interesting thing we saw with migration timing last fall, you know, we had marked birds in um, as far north as, as sort of like north central Ontario and Quebec. Um, here in Maine, throughout New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, um, all the way down to Virginia. So we really kind of covered, spanned north to south the the breeding range. But what we saw was that we almost saw a stronger pattern of west to east in terms of when birds actually left their breeding sites. So the the birds that were coming from Ontario and western Quebec and north western Pennsylvania and western New York were were heading south much earlier than the birds that we had marked say here in Maine for example and and certainly down in Rhode Island so something last fall was causing earlier migration the further west you went rather than here along the Atlantic coast interesting um, and you know we'll we'll have more years of data to see if that was a, a unique phenomenon or if that's consistent. Um, so there was that. And, and the other thing I would just mention, and it's not related to this project per se, um, but I had a, a master's student in my lab here who defended and graduated a couple of years ago, Brian Allen, and he did his thesis work down in Cape May, New Jersey, which is a, a really important uh, stopover site for woodcock. Yes. It's also you know, a fairly well-known hunting area. Uh, he was using radio tags, so the the precursor to the the GPS technology we're using now. Um, but he was looking at you know when birds were there in Cape May, when did they leave, and what were the factors that caused them to leave. Um, and the two really strong signals that he found, um, which aren't terribly surprising, are when you had a wind out of the north east. They, they went, yep. the tailwind. Um, but then the other aspect of his thesis that I found really interesting is he did a lot of work to understand habitat quality throughout Cape May, and it was primarily the birds that were using the best habitat that were taking advantage of those tailwinds. And, and the birds that weren't necessarily in what we would think of as the better parts of Cape May in terms of stopover habitat, they they tended to not be able to leave even when the conditions were good. So it was definitely an interaction there between good conditions for flight, but then also, you know, how is the habitat that you're that you're in, and how probably presumably well are you able to to get ready to go again? Right. So logically, that makes a lot of sense. In that birds in the really good habitat are their comfort, they're comfortable, they're safe they're getting good nutrition and they can just sort of wait it out until they have the right conditions for flight. Yep. Very interesting. All right, cool. Well, I think we, I think we covered a lot of stuff uh, at a high level without getting too down deep into the details, but I really do think it's a fascinating project and certainly near and dear to my heart as it's a bird that I love to uh, observe. And of course hunt, I'm going to put a link to the, the website in the show notes so everybody can check that out. But for, Woodcock hunters and conservationists and listeners of the show, if they want to support or promote this project in any way, do you have any suggestions of what would be the best thing for them to do? Yeah, well, I, I definitely want to give a, a serious plug to the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Um, they have 
they've been really instrumental in getting the project off the ground. They were our first uh, financial backers, if you will. They purchased the first tags that we deployed in our pilot field season, and they're continuing to to contribute in pretty meaningful ways um, to to purchase of transmitters in support of the project. Um, and and really, in a lot of ways, the project wouldn't happen if not for RGS. Um, so the best way, if if anybody's interested in financial contributions, getting in touch with your regional biologist or regional director from the Rough Grouse Society and asking how you can contribute through them would be the best option for sure. Um, and just generally supporting that organization because it's the right thing to do is also is also a good good approach to take. Um, what was the second part of your question? That that was essentially it. Just you know ways okay. ways to support and you know I don't imagine I don't think you guys are you know you don't need volunteers or anything at this point, right? Uh, not necessarily. Although anybody would be welcome to contact us with more interest in the project. Um, we tend to you know, we work very closely with. And almost exclusively, the the work we're doing in the field is in cooperation with state wildlife agencies, and so that would be the the avenue to getting involved. I would think through the you know the the local biologist in any of the state that we're working in, um, because you know we we coordinate the project here at the University of Maine. Alex is very involved in field work, has probably if not already soon will have caught more birds in more places than just about anybody. Um, but it's all with our partners with the state and federal agencies that the work happens. Um, so that, that would be one avenue if people are interested in, in getting involved or learning more about what's happening in their state. Um, their state wildlife agency is the place to go. Excellent. Good to hear. And uh, RGS and AWS membership dollars at work. I uh, love to hear that as well. So very good stuff. And and uh, thanks for the shout out there for RGS and AWS. Let's wrap it up with that, Eric. I really do appreciate your time tonight. It's a, it's a great project. I'm excited to see what else we can all learn about the American Woodcock out of this project. It's very cool. You, Alex, everybody else involved, please keep up the great work and we'll look forward to seeing and hearing more from you. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Nick. This has been a lot of fun. Yep, absolutely. It was my pleasure, Eric. Take care and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again in the future, I'm sure. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you all for listening, tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show. We thank Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, Gumleaf USA, and Dogtra Callers. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the show, share the podcast post, or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. Appreciate all my listeners. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, blogs, articles, gun reviews, book reviews, films, magazine link. It's all there. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you on the next show.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.